Join me in a new series I'm calling The Good, The Bad, The Military Family, where I join in conversation with many military spouses about the hardships and struggles of military life and culture. I'm Annalise Lucero, and this is The Good, The Bad, The Family. I'm excited to be joined with my friend, colleague, peer, classmate, Trisha Johnson. Um, and I'll let you kind of introduce yourself more and, and share a little bit of your story as a therapist and a military spouse. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. It's always nice to kind of connect with people that you went to school with and who share similar life experiences. Um, like Emily said, I am a marriage and family therapist. I'm licensed in the state of North Carolina, where we are stationed. Um, I am a 15-year Marine Corps spouse. So I married my husband uh, when he was already in the military. So I know no other life but this with him. And we are raising two amazing children who also know no other life and who helped me kind of figure out what to say today. Uh, i Thank my teenage daughter for letting me kind of think out loud and then use her brain to help shed some light on what she feels is also relevant when it comes to the military community because she's part of it as well. Oh, definitely. Oh, I'm so excited that you're bringing your children into this podcast without them having to be here, but they're still here with us. That's really great. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so why don't you start by kind of sharing a little bit more about how you wanted to become a therapist and how that plays into your military spouse story? I, that's a great question actually, because I don't think I knew what a therapist was before I was married. And then my husband and I had some issues uh, early, early on, like year one of 15. And my sister suggested going to go see a therapist. And I was like, is that a thing? Do people do that? And he was the greatest therapist I was a 21-year-old, kind of make up her mind, young woman and young mom, and he was in his 40s, and he was amazing. I still remember him to this day, kind of changing my perspective on therapy, and I still hear his voice sometimes telling me things, and I'm like, oh, I still, he's there, and so I finished my bachelor's to be an elementary school teacher, actually, and then we weren't in a position moving and everything for me to do my years of student teaching. So I continued to to teach preschool, which is what I did for about 10 years. And my friends kept telling me, why don't you go become a therapist? We all come to you anyways. And my naive self thought I'm going to be a therapist because I'm going to give advice. And I went to school to become a therapist and basically was told we don't give advice. Same. So, uh, but I loved it. I loved, um, I think relationally, my brain makes patterns. I connect the dots. I just naturally kind of do that. And so becoming a marriage and family therapist made the most sense for me. And I, again, had this kind of mindset, oh, I'm just going to work with military, which is really funny because I would say military only probably makes up about half of my practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, We live, like I said, in North Carolina, and it's a 
it's a pretty big city. And so I have a good mix of military and civilian. And the interesting part about it is often I have civilian clients that come in and talk about friendships that they've had with military families. And then kind of the mental health things that happen for them when the military family moves away. So it's important to remember that like, it doesn't just affect military families solely this impacts the community this impacts other people have come and sat on my couch and said their therapist was military and moved away oh wow yeah oh my gosh so really it impacts everybody and so if you live in a military town it actually impacts a lot of the civilians also that live there so it's real so interesting to have both perspectives Oh, absolutely. I feel like that just, um, I had not really thought about that, even though I know I've had civilian friends and moved away and and disconnected, but absolutely. I think that's so great that you have an awareness as a military spouse and person, but also then being on that other side of supporting the civilians. That's really cool. Oh, yeah. Oh no, sorry. My, my zoom just like farted or something. There we go. Okay. 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 Um, so, so from what I understand you work with, I, I was like, I follow you on social media. I love your posts. They're so inspiring. And I noticed on your website, you have this little part that says, if you're not quite ready to schedule for sessions, follow me on social media. And I thought that was such a nice invitation into like, having more language, more awareness, more, you know, connection to our mental health without, you know, being, we're not ready for that commitment. I thought that was great. But in also reading, I understand you work with families, couples, and individuals. So um, can you tell me a little bit more about, about that? And specifically about what you were talking about before with working with younger people. I think that's really interesting. Well, I have um, been really blessed that, when I started out as um, an intern, I worked with a lot of children and I used my sort of teaching background that helped kind of facilitate that. And as I kept going and becoming licensed, I realized I really, really enjoyed working with teenagers. It's this population that so many therapists avoid and which I think is so outrageous because they're so interesting and they're so different. You never know what you're going to get. And they're so honest. Most teens are just looking for a place to talk and vent and share. So I work with teens. Uh, I do not see anybody under the age of 14. So it's 14 and up in my office. But I see uh, when I have families, it's usually teens and their parents, um, And I, again, I I let my teens kind of dictate that if they feel it's necessary to bring in their parents, I go, hey, do you think this might be something we could share with mom and dad about? And they're like, yeah, or no. And if they say no, I honor that. Um, This is their space to share. Obviously, there's some legal limitations to that. And I honor those. But for the most part, uh, the parents are really understanding and really just want their teenager to have some help. So I see a lot of teens and then I work a lot with uh, couples. And the funny thing about couples work that I've noticed in my practice is what starts out as couples and whatever issues they're having gets kind of um, fixed to use. You can't see my air quotes because I realize I'm on a podcast, but (laughs) fixed, so to say, it gets addressed and they learn some new tools. Um, 
but I have a lot of male clients that come back and they want individual therapy happens all the time. So what starts as couples therapy kind of opens the door and then they feel comfortable with you and then they return. So, so much of my practice is, is um, male driven, which is wonderful because there is such a stigma with males seeking therapy. And I'm happy to say that at least the men in my practice are breaking that stigma. And that goes anywhere from teenage young men to men in their 50s and 60s coming in and and having therapy, which is wonderful. It's not something I would have expected. Hmm. And I love, love working with guys. Do you think that your experience as being a spouse in the Marines or even just a military spouse and being able to understand, well, I mean, now I'm projecting a little bit of my experience, but do you think that being a military spouse gives you maybe like a, an upper hand or a more experience in, in relating or understanding or empathizing with men? In a way, yes, because I mean, you know, stereotypically, I think that men brain men's brains do really well when you can correlate what they're going through with a work environment. Mm-hmm. Their brains tend to work that way. And so it's easier for them to maybe understand more about how they're feeling, what they're experiencing, if we can relay it to a work environment. There's a hierarchy within a work environment and the rank system in the military is a great example of that. There's a way to compartmentalize. A lot of men are really, really good at compartmentalizing and able to kind of focus on one task at hand, which is something they do really well at work. And we can apply it to the thoughts, the feelings, the emotions they might be feeling in like personal relationships Mm -hmm. or past relationships or childhood trauma. And I think that it helps a little bit for sure. I also, I think being a military spouse for as long as I have, I don't have much of a filter. I'm trying to be good because I know we're on a family podcast. I don't have much of a filter. I'm a straight shooter. I shoot from the hip. I I say over and over in my office that my job, and I have mirrors hanging on the walls in my office. And I say, my job is to take these mirrors off the wall and hold them in front of you. Mm-hmm. And that is my job. And so sometimes that includes some curse words. And sometimes that includes some some laughter and some keeping it real in the way that I deliver what I talk about with them. But I've, I've noticed that that comes from being a military spouse more than anything is just being authentically myself and kind of being able to connect with them using their own language and what they like. Well, and I think that's a skill as a military spouse we have to have is connecting. I mean, we're forced into these brand new situations. I remember telling a spouse at first time I went to church on a weekend, I was like, Hey, I need a emergency contact. I just met you. You're at church. You seem trustworthy. You're a military spouse. Let's become best friends. Right. And like, we've, we've got these skills to just kind of connect faster. And like you said, be more straightforward and direct. So I think, how does that work with your teenage clients? I would imagine in my head, they respect that more that you're very authentic. So what, what do you think? They teach me so many things. Uh, I remember my first teenage client by myself years ago and it was like the second session and he used the word fire and he was like, that's fire. And I felt so old in that moment because I did not know what that meant. 
And I just asked him and I was like, I have no idea what that meant. And then he explained it, it meant cool. It meant like awesome. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. I can use that. And I used it like two sessions later. He laughed at me and it was wonderful because we just connected. And so my teens love it because they'll say stuff and I'll be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Can you help me out here? Old person over here. Can you just like fill me in? And they love that I ask the questions. Mm-hmm. I'm super curious. And that's that's my biggest sort of takeaway of parents who are listening who have teenagers is ask question, questions, be curious. Mm-hmm. And when you listen to their responses, don't try to fix it. Listen to it, find whatever emotion seems most fitting to it, and then think about it later and address the emotion, not what they're saying. And I, and I want to encourage parents with extroverted children <laughs> to ask questions, to check in with them. Uh, introverts tend to be easier to identify as a child needing help. Extroverted kids are more difficult. hmm do you, think, do you think you relate to this age group? Uh, they So they say in school or sometimes like the the population that you serve as a therapist is often the population that you needed a therapist or that you relate to the most. Is that true for you in this case? That's interesting. I don't think I've ever thought of it that way. Uh, yeah, I, I think I was the extroverted child who did everything and took on everything and handled it all. But I had a lot of issues growing up as a teen, especially with um, romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. I had a really, really difficult time. I was so different than my sisters or my parents' relationship. And then they all seemed to have it together. And I, I definitely struggled. And I felt like the odd one out for struggling with relationships. And But it was unintentionally overlooked. I, I have very good parents and a very good relationship with them. But it was definitely overlooked because I was the one who got good grades and did sports and all this stuff. So from the outside looking in, I was fine. Mm-hmm. So that's why I really encourage parents, especially a parents with extroverted kids to check in with them because what you see on the outside might not be what's going on in the inside. No, oh, definitely. What are some of the themes that you notice in your work that are happening? Like themes as in you know, common problems or common things that you're working on? With teenagers? Yeah, teenagers or just your your population of people you work with in your practice. Uh, With teenagers, there is an incredible amount of pressure Mm. to be a teen nowadays. I firmly believe that the hardest life stage is being a teenager and the second hardest life stage is raising one. And oh shoot, I got three kids. Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. There so at least when we were in like well, the math we were doing when we were in middle school, mm-hmm. they're now doing an elementary school. And the math that we were doing in high school, they're now doing a middle school. So the level of learning is insane. And then you add in this there's this unspoken pressure to know who you are, know what you want to do, have it all figured out. As as a teenager, when your brain is nowhere near fully developed Mm -hmm. and they're supposed to have it figured out, they're supposed to do extracurriculars and volunteer work and make it great. And and then they have the social media on top of it Mm -hmm. and have it all. And it's so much pressure. So that's definitely a huge theme of just trying, teenagers are just trying to survive. 
So therapy helps take the pressure off. Oh yeah. And I imagine having that unconditional, like positive, well, we call it unconditional positive regard, but it's like unconditional love for your client. Mm -hmm. And I think having that space is so important because I notice even just the way COVID happened and people talked about children, we lack empathy for kids like insane. And so I think that's so amazing that you have this space where these teenagers can really feel that from you and experience that maybe sometimes for the first time of what it's like to have no expectations and just show up and be loved anyway. Yeah. And show a genuine reaction. I, I think parents are more inclined to give toddlers like, good job. You did great. You did amazing sort of praise. And then when they become teenagers, they stop Mm -hmm. like this is it's expected. Yeah. Like, oh, you're an adult now, but then you don't really have the, the brain of an adult, the body of an adult, but you're still expected to be like an adult. It's interesting. Except adults need praise too. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) And we need rewards for our behavior, right? We don't go to work because we love it. We go to work because we earn a paycheck. Mm -hmm. If we love it, that's an added bonus, but we earn a paycheck. So children need praise just as much as everybody else does. We as humans need praise. So I would think that you're like an expert on things teenage because you're raising teenagers, you work with teenagers. So help me have a little more insight. I mean, I'm, I've got three boys, they're military kids. We're probably going to be moving every two years. Like what, what as a parent could I be aware of? I would encourage you to connect on whatever it is that they like. Mm, Not what you like, but what they like. That's a huge one. And it's time. I get it. Parents these days, it's expensive to live. Most people are working and run a household. When you add all the stuff your kids are doing, I mean, you're exhausted. I am as well, for sure. But I don't get home till nine o'clock at night after work and extracurricular activities. I don't want to sit there and listen to the drama of my daughter's life, but I'm going to. Because if I listen to the little stuff, then she's going to tell me the big stuff. Yeah. But if you don't listen to the little stuff, they learn in that moment that you're not going to listen to the big stuff. That's so true. I had a client one time. I saw her and saw her for a while. And she wanted her sister to come in, her older sister, also a teenager. And so her sister comes in. And within 10 minutes of meeting this girl... Apparently her sister had talked about me to the sister that came in within 10 minutes of meeting this girl. She disclosed that a teacher had been being inappropriate with her 10 minutes. It's insane. But I was classified as a person who would listen Mm -hmm. by her sister. And so she felt safe coming in and just kind of word vomited everywhere. And it was beautiful. And it, but it also made me really sad that, Teenagers are so hesitant to trust adults, to have their back, to hear what they have to say, to give them the time of day, which is why you really have to listen to the little, little things. Because if you don't do the little things, they're not going to hear the big things. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so true. I uh, I listened to this audio book by Gabor Mate called Hold On to Your Kids. I don't know if you've heard of it, Mm-mm. but it's a really great book about attachment and parenting attachment and how 
this trend in the last like 50 years of kids kind of attaching to peers instead mm-hmm. of their parents has created this, this lack of trust, right? Where like parents lack the skills to be emotionally available for their for their kids. Mm-hmm. So in your work with your adult population or your families, how are you talking about that emotional awareness and helping parents be more attuned to their experience so they can be present for their kids? Absolutely. What a great way to put it is why we don't change repeats, mm-hmm. right? So often people kind of turn out just like their families or they try really, really hard to go the total polar opposite. Very few people fall in between. And so when working with families, one of my favorite things to do is to create some space. And what I mean by that is, is whether it's military drives us home, especially for the service member, is how many times have you driven by um, the young military information getting yelled at, like they are being screamed at. Mm -hmm. And so there's this almost modeling of really poor emotional reactions. (laughs) And and it's modeled over and over. Everything's a reaction, right? Everything is emotionally reactive. This pisses me off. I'm going to yell. I'm sad. I'm going to cry. I'm happy. I'm going to smile. Everything's an emotional reaction to something. So when I work with families or young adults, um, and, and especially the military, it's let's it's adding just a little bit of space between our emotional reaction and our rational response. Mm-hmm. And we just add a little bit of space. And I literally do that and we do a hand motion of just putting a little bit of space in. There's no set time of space. It's just a little bit of space. And it interrupts a lot of these things that we have been modeled or it's a generational factor. Oh, my dad used to scream and yell at me and his dad screamed and yell at him. And my mom screams about everything. And when you work with families and you explain the difference between an emotional reaction, which is literally something that happens in an instant and you go, give it a few seconds, just give it a few seconds, give it some space. And then it turns the emotional half of your brain kind of down and increases the rational half of your brain kind of up, then you're going from a reaction to a stressor to an actual response and a response you have control over. And it's beautiful when you can do that because once the parents or um, adults can start to recognize, oh, this is an emotional reaction. Mm -hmm. And I, this is not how I want to actually respond to this. Mm-hmm. It changes the dynamics and then it allows teenagers and children and parents to have bad moments, to have bad days and it not dictate their response to a stressor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's such a, that's such a great way of putting it is this space and like what's in that space is the emotional regulation. Mm-hmm. And so how, how successful do you find that being done with military couples? Cause I, I will say, I often find in the work I do with military couples, it's not just the military person. It's also the spouse where they're lacking the skills. And then the two of them can be really explosive if they both don't have that space that you're talking about. Well, I think 
I, I was listening. I saw your your post and your reveal about um, the all or nothing thinking, right? Of the pair. And in my office, uh, it's always that tit for tat thing. But in my office, we like to call it my pain is worse than your pain. Yes. And nobody wins that. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's nobody wins that game. And that's what I think what you're talking about is this sort of difficulty emotionally regulating. And so it's going, I'm hurting. I need you to know that I'm hurting. And my way to tell you that I'm hurting is to point the finger at you Mm -hmm. and blame you, which immediately puts all these defensive walls up. And then your partner is responding with, no, but wait, you hurt me first or you hurt me in a different way. I need you to hear that. And then that person's response is, let me pull all this stuff out of the kitchen sink I've been saving for this rainy fight. And I'm going to throw, remember that thing five years ago? Remember this thing that happened? You did this, 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 this. And it's all emotional reactions. So if we can encourage some space and change it, shift from, an emotional reaction, you can still have your feelings, but you're using your feelings to dictate a rational response. Mm-hmm. You shift from pointing the fingers, which by the way, if you point a finger at somebody, there are three fingers pointing back at you. So if you point and blame, you take the blame out of it and say, this is the way that I feel or better yet. I do a lot because not everyone likes the, I feel statements is my brain heard you say this. Is this like what that. you said? Mm-hmm. My brain heard this. My brain felt this. Is this what you meant? Is this what, how you wanted it to come across? My brain took it this way. And ask a clarifying question. That's that curiosity piece, right? How many times have you sent a text message and it been misunderstood? Oh, God, probably so many times. So why do we think it's different when we try to talk to each other? Oh, I'm sure. Right. And then you come, it comes loaded with all this other stuff that has nothing to do with what we're actually talking about. Yeah. I think that's, to me, that's kind of been like, if I think about it personally, this way of thinking and changing how I approach my emotions, I learned it in therapy. I, you know, I've met, I'm mastering it as a therapist, but then also applying it to my personal life it's like, wow, I've been missing out on so much because I was, I was making all these assumptions in my head and not being more curious about my partner or myself. Like that's wild. So how, how has being a therapist impacted your life? I'm a much better wife. I will say that I'm a much better mom. Mm -hmm. My teenage daughter jokes. She says, my friends don't tell their moms things, but I tell you everything. Because mm-hmm. you don't react. Mm-hmm. Which if you had asked me 10 years ago, I would have reacted on everything. I was definitely like a helicopter mom that like controlled everything. And now I'm still a little helicopter-ish, but I do it in a way that allows her to make decisions. And I'm less reactive when she tells me things and I'm asked more questions. But as a spouse, I'm no different than anybody else. My husband still says stuff that it like makes me angry or makes me emotionally reactive. And just the other day, I literally took a breath, took a pause. And then I, I said, this is how my brain just took what you said. And my husband like 
hands up was like, no, I'm, that's not, not anywhere near. I was joking. And I was like, well, I didn't think it was funny. Mm -hmm. And he goes, I'm so sorry. I won't say anything like that again. And it was resolved, but I, I felt, you know, you feel a physical reaction. You feel yourself rising. You feel yourself getting heated. The difference between letting that heat out Mm -hmm. is I wanted it to be discussed and I knew if I rose, which is what I did almost like every day of the first year of my marriage, and he's better at it. He's, he's a military service person. He's louder. He gets more defensive. So he's going to win. Mm-hmm. And I don't oh, want to fight. Yeah, I can relate to that experience so much. <laughs> Definitely. And I think that's kind of one of the misconceptions I had to be made aware of was that when you go to therapy, you don't perfect your life. You don't, you know, feel no pain anymore. It's that you get more comfortable in the, in the pain, in the hardship, you get more um, tolerance for those big emotions so that you can make a better decision about how to handle them. It doesn't hurt you or your family. No, absolutely. And that's the whole point people come to therapy and go, I'm broken. I need to be fixed. And I'm like, you're not broken. You're here. So clearly we can help and we can process and we can deal and we can heal, but you're not broken. I need to fix you. Well, and you know, I'm just, it's, it's really, for me, I'm kind of reflecting on what you're saying about the teenagers and that in this world where mental health is being pushed and pushed and it's like becoming less of a stigma, even though in the military, it still is a stigma, but it's becoming less in society as a stigma to go to therapy. And there's so much therapy stuff everywhere, which should come with like a caution sign. But so, so then you have this group of teenagers, this generation coming up and it's like all these 30 something year olds and my parents' generation of 60 something year olds are getting woke. Right. I can imagine as a 16 year old, it's like, oh man, I better get my stuff together and come into society all like pretty packaged because that's the expectation. I better have it all together. That is a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. And there's a fear of failing too. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me more about that. So there's this fear of not enough. That word enough is this magic word that if you think about it at some point and I dare to say everybody's life, they felt not enough for somebody, for a job, for a sport, for school, for something. So there's this fear of failure. And I remind people that fear is not necessarily a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite metaphors is who doesn't love a roller coaster? And I don't know about you, but I, I was terrified my whole adolescence of roller coasters, terrified because I was believing my own fear. I was letting fear dictate my decisions. And then I became an adult who had children who wanted to ride roller coasters. And so my need to keep them safe overran my fear of roller coasters <laughs> and no one wanted to sit by mom because I've gripped their leg too tight to kind of like keep them in the seat. But when you're going up that first drop of a roller coaster, your, your stomach is in knots and you are praying to whatever you believe in and you are hoping for the very best. Keep us alive. Keep us safe. Make us get back to the, you know, the starting point. Well, and then it drops 
And then it's exhilarating and it's fun and it's adrenaline and it's a rush and you, you get off the roller coaster and you're a little dazed, but you're definitely proud of yourself for doing it. So we can't use this fear of failure as something that holds us back when really our fear is probably telling us all it's telling us is that this is something that's important to us. This is something that we're, we're, we're feeling intense about. Mm-hmm. And even if we fail, it's actually a good thing because we learn more in our failures than we do our successes. If you are instantly good at everything, you're not going to try very hard. Mm -hmm. But if you fail and you pick yourself back up and you work harder, you're going to be much more successful, not just in this endeavor that you're working towards, but in life, because you build what is resiliency there, which is what military children and military families know so much of, because despite the fear, the military progresses and you, you, you have to follow through with things. So it's nice to see this, this drive and resiliency that comes into it, but it's a matter of remembering that failure isn't a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. And I imagine thinking, you know, our brains think systemically that to be able to take that risk and that leap of faith, despite your fear requires so much trust in the people around you. And that's why family is so important. That's why having support is so important. And so I can imagine for these kids you work with, for military kids and military families, it is, you take a a big risk when you move to a new base, when you go to an event, when you show up, you know, for battle of the bands at high school, like anything that you do requires so much risk and so much faith that you'll be supported on the other end, whether you fail or succeed. And so, yeah, the work that you're doing with families and with these kids and everybody is so important. Absolutely. And it's, it's really, really nice to see when they start to apply the things that we talk about. I did this thing, you know, I checked my emotions and I thought, okay, why am I feeling this way? Okay. I'm feeling this way because, and then approaching the person that triggered them to feel that way and having a conversation and it's beautiful. Like it's, it's probably the most rewarding feelings when they're starting to learn to cope and problem solve and communicate and do all these things. Cause then they're going to grow up and be adults who have these relationships and they're going to teach their partner how to do this. So we're interrupting cycles all over the place. And I think that's something that's not far off from working with young military members. And I really, if there are future therapists listening, please, please listen <laughs> It's more, I think there's a stigma, especially as a therapist to work with military, because there's a fear of it being war-driven PTSD. Mm -hmm. There's a fear of that. Oh, I'm not, I'm not an expert in PTSD. I can't work with young military. Well, there is a generation right now of young servicemen and women who don't have experience in war right now, but that do need therapy for a multitude of reasons, relationships, job stressors, um, difficulty, you know, coping with life, childhood trauma, stuff like that. It's not all PTSD war related. So it's important to providers to kind of broaden their horizons and bring in more military service members because they're needing our help. I don't know about you, but 
there is not enough providers. Base is full on our end. Mm-hmm. And with only active duty servicemen and women, so all spouses or people who don't want records or whatnot, they have to go out in town and it is limited on what they have available. And it's, it's heartbreaking. We yes. need more. Yes. We've, we have that same issue here at our base and at every base I've been to, um, you know, it is, it's, it's like a lack of resources. It's a lack of people, like you said, who are willing to go into the session with military members and, and talk about, because they're just people, they're just people like everybody else. And so many people, I mean, we all have trauma, maybe not complex trauma, but we all experience something traumatic in our life. And, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I can see that, that need, I live at Shepard Air Force Base, which is the technical training hub for airmen in training. So we are like, I mean, it looks like a college campus here. It's like 3,000, 18 to 20 something year olds who are fresh out of basic. Mm -hmm. And we really do. I mean, community wise, we lack the resources here in Wichita Falls, but even on the base, we were without our military family life counselor for months. We had nobody in the, in the position. Mm -hmm. So it limits the options for people. And so if, yeah, if there are therapists who listen, I think it's definitely worth being curious about and seeing if you could go into that area. Um, absolutely. There's, there's a huge need for it. Mm-hmm. Well, and for the spouses who support these young, uh, military members too, because Holy cow, when Nathan and I got married, I was 21, pretty much 22. And, uh, I had no idea how to support him. I had no idea how to be a good wife, right? Like I was out of my mind. And so I think if we were both receiving tools and he was getting that treatment and I was getting treatment and we could come together in a couple session and, you know, use those skills. I think it would have just made our lives so much healthier and, and better, more enriching too. I, I feel like I missed out on a lot of experiences because I had a lot of anger and resentment, mm-hmm. mostly because I felt stupid. Like I didn't know what was going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. And I, I'm the same boat. I married Kevin at 20. So I, I feel you on that one. But isn't it interesting how both of us have were young spouses and then got our own therapy at some point in life and then realized, hey, there's a need here. And this is something that I feel drawn to and passionate about. And that makes us that much more enriched as therapists because of our life experiences. Being a therapist is so much more than a master's degree mm-hmm. and, and, and technical learning. It is so much more. Life experience plays a role in how we, you know, approach our, our clientele. And it's funny. I don't know if you see young servicemen, those 18 to 20 year olds, but when they show up in my office, I feel very motherly towards them. I'm not old enough to be their mother, but I feel very motherly towards them. And because it reminds me so very much of how young my husband was when we were married and how many tools he was lacking as a husband and as a dad and as a Marine. And he's grown and adapted in so many years. Oh, definitely. And I think it's that recognizing of how much nurturing military members need. And, and I, I recognized I needed nurturing, but I don't think my husband really ever did until we did couples therapy together. And it is like, you are treated like a number 
in the military. And that is, there's no point in like, get like, Oh, you know, but this, and no, that's just the reality of the military. You were treated like like a number. You are a, a, a piece of equipment that they have put a lot of money into to tweak and get just right and send to technical schools to be this, you know, perfect this skill. So yeah, they invest a lot of money in them. They want a product Mm -hmm. and they don't care what they have to do to you to get it. And I think that I watch my husband struggle through that. And Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful. There's a therapist like you out there who's helping these service members during that struggle. Cause Holy cow. (laughs) I think it's wonderful that you brought that up because that's something we talk about all the time, that it is a job. It is a J O B. It is a job. It is a well-oiled machine that will continue without them. Mm -hmm. And so I, I make it very clear. You, you leave your unit. What happens? They put someone in your place, right? Yeah, it's a well-oiled machine. So but that being said, one of the things that I work with, with with military, which I think applies to military spouses at all as well, especially young ones, is you get this sort of like narrow focus on one facet of your life, that being the military being a spouse or being a service mm-hmm. member that we forget that our lives are encompassed by so many pieces. And another metaphor, clearly I'm a therapist who enjoys metaphors, but a metaphor that I love to use is a pizza. If you think about a pizza to make the entire circle, it requires a lot of slices of pizza. And if we pour all of our energy into just one slice of the pizza, then we are neglecting everything else. Mm -hmm. So we are whole beings with full lives and many facets that all need our attention. And that's where working with young couples or working with young service members, there's this idea that, oh, I need to be fully engulfed in my spouse and I need to be about spouse. But then it becomes almost suffocating how much you need to be with this person when we need to have some independence as humans, Mm-hmm. And we have many facets. We have, if you have a faith or religion, that's a facet. If you have children, that's a facet. Family's a facet. Jobs are a facet. Your romantic relationships are a facet. Your own health, physical and mental health are facets. Your own learning and education, your hobbies are a facet. There's so many aspects to our lives, a lot of which have very little to do with the military or our spouses. Mm-hmm. So we need to be feeding our own facets of life in relation to everything else everything gets its own sort of percentage of time and energy but making sure that all of them are being met because we can't neglect everything for one facet and that's true for anything if all you ate was chocolate would you be healthy like no no and you probably wouldn't like chocolate anymore because that's all you would eat right so true yeah, I think about a workaholic, a person who can never leave their job, who only thinks about work, who does all the time. Are they healthy? No. Mm-hmm. So too well, much and, of and anything is a bad all, thing. Oh, yes. And in all of that, in neglecting all those other slices of the pizza, that's where resentment comes in. Like I'm giving mm-hmm. everything to this military life, this military family, this military culture, this job, this base, this community. What am I getting out of it? Right? Like Absolutely. you get burnt out, you get resentful. and. I'm going to double down on that metaphor and say, you can't live off of one slice of pizza. You, yes. you, need more nur- you can't be nourished enough off of one slice of pizza. You need more. So, I mean, certainly I can eat a whole pizza pie by myself. <laughs> so, And you know, some days 
we're allowed to do that because some days are harder than others. And if that is how you cope that day, so be it. That's how you coped that day. But we need to, as a society, need to encourage sort of meeting all of our facets of our life, which is why that's true for teenagers and especially young military spouses. There's this kind of narrow focus. You almost lose yourself a little bit in that beginning stage. And then you start to find yourself. And when you start to find yourself, then you feel fulfilled rather than depleted. Mm-hmm. Tell me, tell me, because I'm curious now after hearing you talk about this, what is military family? I'm air quoting now too. What is military family in the Marines? What do you mean by that? Like, what is the, what, what is, well, maybe just, you can only speak from yourself personally. What has your experience been like as a Marine family with the military family? Um, Our family breaks a lot of stigmas. I believe we don't stereo, we break a lot of molds. We fell into initially the stereotype. Um, my husband and I knew each other for count them two and one half months. Um, and, and within those two and a half months, we uh, met, married and conceived our daughter. So it was typical sort of stereotypical military thing. And we were the rule in that sense. We kind of fell into that stereotype. And then we became the exception. Mm-hmm. And we became the exception through a lot of hard work. Um, there are couples therapy. My husband and I have both gone to individual therapy on our own. Um, we've done a lot of work at home and how we communicate. And we pour, we poured in first so much to our kids and we relate so well on so many um kind of non-negotiables if you go to like premarital counseling counseling which we didn't but if you if you go to those like they tend to cover a handful of topics and some of them are uh, like religion extended family children work inside the home, outside the home, um, sex life, money. Those are kind of like the top seven things they talk about. And if you can align on a lot of those sort of big things, then all the little stuff kind of falls into place through work and effort. I think couples have a really hard time when they disagree on the big things, because then, like you said, it brings in that sort of resent resentment. It feels a lot like you're overly compromising and the other person isn't and you kind of miss out on something. But if you can align typically on the big stuff, you, you, you have a good foundation to kind of build upon. And I I got lucky that my husband and I had those things in common. We wanted the same things. We communicated poorly and very, very differently. We have very different family backgrounds, but we wanted to be really attentive parents Mm -hmm. and we both are, and we wanted to, we're both incredibly ambitious people, which is kind of difficult when your husband's in the military to be an incredibly ambitious person. You know this. Mm-hmm. And so we just made it work. And we started to recognize our, you know, the things that we see in our partner as strengths. And one thing that I think works for us and breaks that stigma of a lot of military, military couples is we are a team. It was never my husband makes money and it's not my money. It was, we are in this together. We're doing this together. We are a team and we played to each other's strengths. Hmm. And I will be honest with you in 15 years. And if you talk to anybody like us, who's been married forever, how many times have your roles 
changed oh, yeah. in that in that life. My husband, um, the position he's now in, still active duty, allows him to work remotely a lot. And since we have school-aged children, they're gone. So he's home by himself a whole bunch. So I joke with him all the time that he's my house husband and he loves it because I was a stay-at-home mom who had a preschool from home and was in school for so long that he wanted to do that. He wanted to be home more. And now I'm out and he's in. And so we've kind of shifted roles, but we play to each other's strengths. And so I think that's where really successful military couples um, play to each other's strengths. And it doesn't feel like one is overly compromising to another. And I have a lot of really great friends who've been in a very, who've been in the military a long time, have beautiful relationships because they approach it as a team effort. Mm-hmm. It is not all one person or another. It's what can we do to best support and encourage each other every step of the way. Oh, absolutely. And I love that you describe yourself as breaking that stereotypical mold because that mold just needs to get thrown out. It doesn't work. Yes. It just doesn't work. Yeah, you can get creative with things like absolutely. And we've had to make sacrifices. I want to be very clear. This is not without sacrifices. Um, 2020 was my first uh, year practicing um, still uh, the last year, I should say, practicing that with a supervisor. And my husband was gone. He chose to go to Japan unaccompanied. Um, both of our children are EFMP, and so uh, which is the Exceptional Family Member Program, and they didn't have uh, resources in Okinawa, Japan, for them. And so he left, and we had every intention of seeing each other every three months. And five days later, COVID became a thing in the United States. So we went through. My kids and I went through 2020 without him. Mm-hmm. and I was practicing and we were doing quarantine and it was, it was a lot. It was a huge sort of 10 times the sacrifice we realized we were going to have to do. And it, it was hard on all of our relationships. It, it was hard. It's a long time. We went 11 months. It's a long time to go without seeing your significant other. And it's a, it's a lot different than, than a deployment, but I'm so glad we did it. It allowed him to come back and get stationed right here. And so we have more years here, hopefully retiring here and allowed me to get fully licensed. And we found a way to put both of our careers kind of at this forefront. Mm -hmm. And it required some sacrifices on our relationship, but we persevered through it. And we both had therapy throughout. I'll make sure that's clear. Mm -hmm. We both went to therapy through it because it was very hard, but it was worth it in the end. Yeah. And I love that you kind of describe it as the shared vision of like mm-hmm. the shared future, the shared life that you're living together and how that is achievable through communication. Cause it's, yes, not, it's, easy. Not, all or it's, not, it's not all or nothing. It's right. both. And exactly. we both have dreams and we both have goals and we're both ambitious and it's, it's working out beautifully. And my husband is my number one, number one supporter. We have made a, an abundance of sacrifices for my career, which is fantastic. But his, my favorite line from him, and this is where I think we break the mold a little bit, is he goes, he calls me the investment. He's like, you are our future. He's like, my career carried us in the beginning and your career is going to carry us in the end. Oh. 
Yeah. So we kind of aligned it. Yeah. That way. So, and I think that's important for young military families to remember that you're allowed both of partners are allowed to have an abundance of goals and dreams and ambitions and not always are both at the top of the list, but just know that the tides do change and you can shift. So don't stop what you want or quit your dream or give up on it because it's not your time to be in the top. It just means that right now, this is where your life is at and it will naturally sort of gravitate towards the top or gravitate towards a little bit lower. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And it's not all or nothing. No relationship is all or nothing. Could you imagine how boring it would be if it was all or nothing? And it's not 50-50 either all the time. Sometimes it's like 90-10. Oh, my Alexa is going off right now. Oh, Alexa, stop. I swear, she has like a mind of her own. I don't know. Yeah, she had some attitude going on. But I agree with you on the percentage. I think whoever thought of 50-50, you know, was, you know, Henry Ford back in the 1950s and 40s where the 40-hour work week was created, thinking the wife at the time um, was going to stay home and take care of the kids and take care of the house. I don't know about you, but we live in 2022 and it is expensive. And one income very rarely covers everything someone else needs. And so we have a lot of, if not majority, two income households, three income households. People have multiple streams of incomes coming all the time trying to make ends meet. And it can't be all or nothing. We have, there's no sort of 1950s roles anymore. Parents are doing everything both parents, regardless of gender, regardless of relationship, it's both parents are doing the work and bless the single parents out there doing it because they need all our support. That's where the support should be going Mm -hmm. is the single parents. Oh yeah. And that's like, that's like a whole other podcast episode or these single military parents who are, oh my gosh, just making it work or making it work. Well, my, my takeaways from today are really that communication is so important Mm -hmm. and that, you know, I think I'm thinking about like teenagers, but I'm also thinking about myself. I'm like reflecting on my teenage experience and I love working with teenagers. That was an age when I feel like I needed a lot of help. And I think the biggest thing is to just be present in the moment. So communication, being present in the moment and having that like emotional awareness of what I'm experiencing and being curious about what other people are experiencing. My partner, my kids, my coworkers, my friends. Absolutely. Just ask questions. Mm -hmm. Just add more questions um, to everybody. Ask questions instead of making assumptions and yeah. you'll be surprised. And people love when you ask a question because then they get to talk more and people love talking about themselves. So it's wonderful. I mean, I'm, a, I'm included in that. Oh yeah. So it's, you know, it's I great. Have a podcast yeah. Where I talk to myself. All the time. <laughs> I don't have a podcast where I talk to myself, but I do talk to myself in the car a lot or in the shower when I need to externalize all the things that I'm thinking but I have similar takeaways from today. It's just communication, ask questions, listen to what people have to say mm-hmm. and realize that we are all humans just trying to do our best. We're allowed to have good days, bad days, everything in between. And that's for kids. That's for teens. That's for adults. That's for spouses. Everybody's allowed to have bad days. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you so much for being here. I really, oh, absolutely. I really appreciate you sharing your story and all your experience as a, as a family and couples therapist. Um, and if people want to find you, they can go to your website. Yes. My website. And then my, um, social media is attached to it. So they can just scroll down at the bottom and there's a Facebook and Instagram page and I'm trying to get better at it. So please bear with me, but yes, it is. It is a learning experience of mine, the social media world. Oh yeah. That's I'm, I'm tackling that battle as well. So you're a moment you're in North Carolina. Are you licensed in any other States? No, just North Carolina, North Carolina. And it's moments matter therapy. Yes. And your Instagram is also Moments Matter Therapy. Yes. And it's momentsmattertherapy.com. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Momentsmattertherapy.com. See, even I forgot, like websites have dot coms. Right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> Not all absolutely. Right. And yeah. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Trisha, for being here. And no problem. Um, yeah. Best of luck on your new practice and all the things you're doing. It's exciting. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. If you want to hear more from the good, the bad, the family, please subscribe. Or you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at MFT. Thanks for listening. I'm a licensed and trained marriage and family therapist but this podcast is not a replacement for therapeutic advice. If you need help finding a therapist, visit psychologytoday.com to find a therapist in your area.